Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, George Orwell. Now let's continue with our story about George Orwell. Orwell was barely across the border before wiring a British publication, offering an account of his Spanish experience to the new statesman. This effort, entitled Eyewitness in Barcelona, was eventually rejected by the editor because Orwell asserted that the Republican leftist government was employing viciously fascist methods to stifle dissent, and the writer linked communism with fascism. This refusal to link the two ideologies was commonplace among the British leftist press, which also published accounts of the Spanish conflict that Orwell dejectedly termed a false revision of history. Orwell would be further disappointed when, upon his return to Britain, he proposed a book-length treatment of his experience and his contrary political perspective. Victor Golantz rejected the concept, implying that such a book would merely aid the fascist cause, a perspective that would have considerable future commercial consequences for the publisher. Orwell and his wife returned to the seclusion of Wallington, Aunt Nellie having left the place in a shambles. He was able to get another publisher, Frederick Warburg of Secker and Warburg, interested in his manuscript concerning Spain, eventually titled Homage to Catalonia. Published in the spring of 1938, the book sold poorly and was ignored by much of the leftist literary establishment, a development that Orwell thought was deliberately orchestrated, based on his anti-Soviet perspective. By the end of 1937, the writer was both mentally and physically exhausted. Although he had an outline for a novel, Orwell's health forced him to literally suspend all work for several months. Plagued by various pulmonary ailments for much of his life and a heavy smoker of crude, hand-rolled cigarettes, it was not a surprise when doctors diagnosed him with permanent damage to both lungs. Although it was downplayed as not acute, Orwell was also diagnosed with possible tuberculosis, and it was recommended that he take time off completely and rest in a sanitarium in Kent. He remained there for almost six months ultimately deciding that an even warmer climate might be a better place to resume work. In September 1938, he and Eileen set out by steamship for Morocco, intent on taking up residence in Marrakesh. They both tried to ignore the increasingly tense European political situation, hoping that Chamberlain's negotiations with Hitler would prevent another war, which Orwell adamantly opposed. After staying in hotels for several weeks, the couple moved to a comfortable villa at the base of the Atlas Mountains, where Orwell wrote his next novel called Coming Up for Air, a work that combines the main character's sentimentality for his childhood with the impending threats of modern-day politics. Combining tourism throughout Morocco with consistent time at the typewriter, 
Orwell was ready to head back to England by April of 1939. He stayed in London only long enough to drop off the manuscript of Coming Up for Air, retyped by Eileen, with his agent. Having included sarcastic, politically-oriented digs at some of the characters that he assumed would irritate Golantz, he did not stick around long enough to hear what he believed to be the inevitable demands for rewrites and changes. Understanding that on a long-term basis, a milder climate might be more suitable than Wallington, Orwell and his wife headed to his parents' home in Southold. Their visit coincided with both his father's declining health and the publication of Coming Up for Air. Golantz was put off by the political perspective of the book, but he did not wish to be perceived as politically censoring a, by now, well-known opponent of communism. Orwell's publisher was probably pleasantly surprised when the book not only sold well, but was critically acclaimed, the Times Literary Supplement even naming it as a novel of the week. Most likely the author's ability to capture the flavor of the previous two decades and the dread of a war looming on the horizon captured the popular imagination. If nothing else, the book was able to provide Orwell with a belief that finally his father might not consider him a failure after all. At the end of June, with his father's health rapidly failing, Richard Blair asked to hear a very favorable review that appeared in the Sunday Times. Shortly thereafter, he died. This somber moment did not stop Orwell from running down some of his old flames, attempting to rekindle romance by explaining that Eileen and he enjoyed an open marriage. All such advances were rebuffed, and Orwell finally returned to Wallington with Eileen. The stores continued to barely pay for itself, and Orwell settled into producing several book reviews and essays on various topics that he hoped to publish as a book. In August, as Europe lurched closer towards war, the writer personally experienced a shocking and remarkable visit from law enforcement. In the middle of nowhere, two detectives knocked on his cottage door and informed him that they were there to seize any publications that were officially obscene or seditious. Several books were removed, and Orwell received an official warning from state prosecutors that if he imported this type of material in the future, he would be prosecuted. Eventually, he pieced together that he recently had sent a letter to Obelisk Press, ordering some of the banned works of Henry Miller. Clearly, someone opening his mail presumed correctly that he was in possession of similarly offensive work. Orwell was much more mortified to realize that not only was the government openly surveilling individuals considered to be dangerous or subversive, but also that he was on such a list. War inevitably broke out in September of 1939, but Orwell, rather than avoiding involvement in any organized support, officially registered and attempted to enlist. Eileen got involved by working in the censorship department of the Ministry of Information, living at her brother's home in Greenwich during the week, and Wallington over the weekend. The military did not seem to want Orwell, so he contented himself with finishing his collection of essays entitled Inside the Whale that Golantz immediately accepted. His publisher, like many formerly pro-Stalinists, had been put off by the non-aggression pact signed by Nazi Germany and the USSR only days before the German invasion of Poland, and suddenly Orwell's Stalinist skepticism seemed appropriate. Additionally, some of Orwell's contemporaries were starting a new literary publication called Horizon, and they chose to use one of his essays in this magazine. Inside the Whale and another short book, an essay entitled The Lion and the Unicorn, Socialism and the English Genius, were published in 1940 and 1941, respectively. 
Both of these works underlined Orwell's belief that democratic socialism was an antidote to communism and that the classism and decadence of the British ruling class needed to be removed. This would be the only major publication by the author for several years, the war and other personal endeavors distracting him from his usual intense focus. The initial grim headlines from Europe were underlined by personal tragedy when Eileen learned that her brother, Lawrence O'Shaughnessy, an M.D. and surgeon serving in the front lines with the Army Medical Corps, was killed at Dunkirk. In the chaotic retreat, his body was never recovered. Unable to join the military, Orwell at least signed up for the Local Defense Volunteers, a National Guard militia that would be mobilized in the event of an expected Nazi invasion. He and Eileen also rented a series of small London apartments the Wallington House retained as a kind of country retreat. Orwell remained frustrated by both his inability to contribute militarily to the war effort and the continued difficulty of grinding out a living as a writer of essays and reviews, with cash both unpredictable and minimal. This problem was solved when he was hired as a broadcaster by the Indian section of the BBC. He would produce, write, and even broadcast programs for the radio network's Eastern Service, directed primarily towards India. This was to counter Nazi propaganda efforts to inflame native hostility towards the empire. For two years, Orwell helped broadcast a wide range of programming, but ultimately resigned when it was determined that few, if any, actual Indians listened to the material. By 1943, he was already writing frequently for the left-wing Weekly Tribune, eventually providing a column and assuming the post of literary editor. Additionally, the alliance between the USSR and Britain further irritated him as he believed that the British government was expediently ignoring Stalinist totalitarianism to facilitate the war effort. He proposed to comment on the situation, but instead of additional esoteric political essays, this time he chose fiction as a method of political commentary, intent on reminding society of the oppression of Russian communism, despite widespread sympathy for the USSR's war effort against the Nazis. But he only told a few individuals how he would use animals in a parable, most believing that the idea seemed simplistically ridiculous. His wife, Eileen, however, was able to hear excerpts as they were being composed and was encouraged and wildly enthusiastic, calling it the best thing he had ever written. The novel, entitled Animal Farm, was completed by March of 1944 and was brief at approximately 30,000 words. Golantz had the right of first refusal of at least two more Orwell novels, but the writer tried to warn both his agent and his sometime publisher that he, Golantz, would be put off by the material and its perspective. Victor Golantz was insistent that he get a look at the manuscript, but took only four days to pass, composing a tierce note of rejection. Perhaps the publisher understood the incredible power of a simple but devastating send-up with clearly identifiable political figures ranging from Marx to Stalin and Trotsky, and utterly cynical renditions of practices involving blatant hypocrisy and historical revisionism. Initially, Orwell was not disappointed by Golantz's reaction, believing that such a violently negative response meant that the novel was witheringly effective. But he still had not taken into account other publishers not wanting to offend the Russian ally during wartime. Two other publishers, Jonathan Cape and Nicholson and Watson, turned it down for that reason. And again at Faber and Faber, T.S. Eliot cooked up a more philosophical but just as firm rejection. 
Orwell quickly exhausted his circle of viable publishing and literary contacts and hit a dead end. For the moment, he returned to essays and editing Horizon. Despite their desire to have children, George and Eileen had never been able to conceive a child. In 1944, they decided to adopt and, through Eileen's sister, were able to acquire a three-week-old boy who they named Richard. Three days later, while the family was visiting relatives, their London flat was hit with a V-1 rocket that destroyed much of their home. Orwell had to retrieve books and papers from the rubble which he carted in a wheelbarrow to his office. The couple moved to another apartment lent to them by friends who had relocated outside of London. During this particular moment of upheaval and chaos, Orwell got word that Frederick Warburg had heard about Animal Farm and was eager to read it. The author was not enthusiastic, initially neglecting to send it because he believed Warburg would reject the fundamentally anti-Soviet theme. Not only was Warburg not intimidated, he immediately declared the book a great work of literature. Still, Orwell worried that the literary establishment would find a way to bury it. The stress of finding a publisher for Animal Farm and the war and its personal impact on Orwell and his family prompted the writer to want to leave London in search of peace and quiet in some remote location. Already intent on a new novel, he hoped to find such a refuge by the summer of 1945. Orwell was already a frequent contributor to The Observer, a left-wing weekly. In February of 1945, the publication offered him the opportunity to work as a war correspondent. His wife had quit her job at the Ministry of Food to focus on caring for their son. Unfortunately, in March, during a hysterectomy, she suffered complications from an anesthetic and died, aged 39. Orwell reached home two days later for her funeral and burial in Newcastle, her hometown. His contemporaries described him as not only grief-stricken, but also guilty, believing that he had not always treated her appropriately. Although he could have remained in Britain to take care of his child, he felt that heading back to France as a war correspondent would take his mind off of the tragedy, and he was able to get some close friends to temporarily provide child care. His publisher also informed him that Animal Farm was scheduled for release in August of 1945. Orwell remained in Europe until late May, and then returned home to write about the upcoming British national election, which eventually resulted in a victory for Labour and Clement Attlee, and defeat of Churchill's Conservative Party. Orwell, like many others, believed that this victory would provide the basis for great social change, full employment, nationalization of basic industry, and a rebuilding of the country according to a socialist model. Published only three days after Japan's surrender and the end of World War II, Animal Farm was a literary sensation, immediately selling out the first two editions of 15,000 copies. With Churchill's Iron Curtain speech only six months away, Orwell was already presciently addressing the political reality of the impending Cold War. Despite his heavy journalistic workload, he was already at work on another novel that he felt would be even more groundbreaking. Wanting to escape the distractions of London, in September of 1945, Orwell first traveled to Jura, a remote island in the southwest corner of Scotland. Once there, he stumbled upon Barnhill, a remote and unoccupied farmhouse that he immediately leased from its owner. Unreachable by car, without electricity or telephone, over eight miles from any inhabited village, daily life in this dwelling was challenging. 
But for Orwell, much like his rural existence at the stores, the solitude and abundant wildlife and rugged beauty was the perfect antidote for the oppressive environment in London. His wife's death and his own poor health made him more introspective about his future and his determination to finish his current novel, which he sensed would be his most important work. He also felt that such a remote location would prevent any harm from assassination by communists, something he felt was a distinct possibility after witnessing Stalinist ruthlessness in Spain. To further protect himself, he kept a pistol at arm's length at all times, even while on Jura. Determined to flee London as quickly as possible, Orwell got some more bad news in May of 1946. His older sister, already in ill health for several months, passed away on May 3rd. The writer had now lost his mother, his wife, and his sister within three years. It was no wonder that when Orwell finally got to his island refuge in the Hebrides, a member of the Fletcher family, who owned Barnhill, described him as a sad and lonely man who looked as if he had been through a great deal. Still, he was determined to improve his living conditions and was accompanied by his younger sister, Avril, his son, and a nanny. By no means reclusive, he invited many friends and acquaintances to visit, although many turned him down. Starting from London, it could take as long as 48 hours to traverse the route through Glasgow to the eastern Scottish coast and then two separate ferry rides before even getting to the island. After a 20-mile car ride on the only paved road in the vicinity, the final seven miles was a walk on a rough dirt road that even today can only be driven on by a 4x4. There was no running hot water, which needed to be heated with a gas stove. Light was provided by candles or paraffin-fueled lanterns. Coal and peat burned in the main fireplace, heated frequently chilly and damp evenings. Eventually, Orwell planted a garden, learned how to hunt small game, and spent a great deal of time fishing and shellfishing. The only entertainment was provided by a battery-powered radio. Orwell got word in August that Animal Farm had not only sold 50,000 copies in the U.S., but was also now a Book of the Month Club selection, generating an additional 400,000 in sales. In 1946, only Dr. Spock would sell more books. In October, he returned to London, but he became more determined to return to Jorah even earlier than in 1946, even permanently if possible. He also managed to permanently sever any ties to Victor Golantz, who was still contractually owed first refusal of two novels, but who Orwell resented, especially after the great success of Animal Farm, a book that Golantz did not even want to publish. From now on, his intent was that all of his work, including any back catalog, was to be published by Frederick Warburg at Secker and Warburg. By April, he was back at Jura with his sister Avril, again helping with childcare and managing the household. Because daily life required so much effort to keep the house functional and to literally put food on the table, in May of 1947, Orwell admitted to his publisher that he only was a third of the way through the manuscript. A brutal winter in London, and the exertion on the island did not help his pulmonary condition, which could only be described as chronic, with constant coughing. He was further delayed when, on a typical island excursion in his dinghy with small outboard engine, accompanied by his infant son and three younger relatives, he got caught in a notorious tidal whirlpool, so strong that it tore off the engine. 
Eventually, the boat capsized, and Orwell had to rescue his son in deep water, all five members of the party barely making it to a small, uninhabited island before eventual rescue by a local fishing boat. The freezing cold water exacerbated Orwell's lung condition, but his focus on the novel improved, and he refused to even consider hospitalization on the mainland. By the end of November, a rough draft was complete, although Orwell maintained that much of it required a rewrite. Unfortunately, by the Christmas season, the writer's condition had deteriorated to the point where a specialist was summoned from Glasgow. A diagnosis of tuberculosis was immediate, and Orwell had no choice but to spend Christmas away from the island. He recuperated in a sanitarium outside of Glasgow, and through contacts was able to acquire streptomycin from the U.S., Although the side effects, hair loss, ulcers, and peeling skin were severe, by March his condition was greatly improved. Still quite frail, he would not leave the hospital until late July 1948. Physically weak, Orwell received a letter from his publisher encouraging him to forget other journalistic work and to focus solely on his novel, expressing hope that it could be finished by the end of 1948. Although great career advice, this did little for Orwell's health. By November, he was unable to walk and continued work bedridden. Barnhill routinely lashed by freezing rain and gale-force winds. When no professional typist would agree to travel to Jura to type up the rough manuscript, Orwell handled the 125,000-word task himself. He had the complete manuscript on his publisher's desk by December 4th, a source of great pride. Although Orwell considered a title of The Last Man in Europe, he and Warburg eventually agreed on 1984, immediately setting the tone for a futuristic perspective. Whether Orwell merely reversed the digits of 1948 or added the protagonist's age of 36 to 48 are two theories about the title. Another more substantive perspective suggests that Orwell was influenced by a futuristic poem written by his wife entitled End of the Century, 1984, published in 1934, Orwell incorporating this idea as a final sentimental homage. The remarkably bleak novel mirrored Orwell's personal political outlook. He believed that nuclear war between the superpowers was imminent within no more than 10 to 20 years. 1984, his fictional vision of the result. Clearly, the effort of completing the novel had taken everything out of the writer, while his publisher privately exulted over the manuscript, calling it, quote, among the most terrifying books I have ever read, unquote. Orwell collapsed. He was no longer up to the rigorous environment of Jura and instead checked himself into a sanitarium in the Cotswolds at Cranham, Gloucester, 400 more temperate miles to the south. Here, he did nothing more challenging than greeting visitors, many of them younger women that he had romanced over the years. In early February, he also received a letter that must have been truly bittersweet. After the wild success of Animal Farm, a relative of Jacintha Buttercombe figured out that George Orwell was none other than the former Eric Blair. Notified of his new identity and intrigued, Jacintha contacted Secker Warburg and got a hold of Orwell's current address, sending a letter erroneously and perhaps mischievously dated February 14th. Orwell was thrilled to hear from his childhood friend and wrote two separate responses in the same envelope. He hoped they would reconnect as soon as he recovered. He was eager to have her meet his young son and ended the letter with a very affectionate closing. 
Unfortunately, Orwell's condition continued to worsen. He was no longer writing and even occasionally so ill that he did not want to receive visitors. However, the publication of 1984 on June 8th certainly should have encouraged him. An initial run of 25,000 copies followed by second and third editions of 5,000 apiece. That was practically modest compared to the American release a week later, which yielded 40,000 editions sold, plus a Book of the Month Club version that eventually yielded an additional 200,000 in sales. The reviews varied, but it was unanimously agreed that 1984 was a major work by an important author. One review that Orwell never got to hear was that of Jacintha Buttecombe. Although they exchanged phone calls, she never agreed to meet with Orwell in person, and she never told him about her own illegitimate child. Possibly fearful that he would ask her to marry him and take care of his son, or even put off by the depiction of violent fantasies concerning Julia, the female love interest in 1984, a character who ultimately betrays the protagonist, Jacintha again let the relationship wither, this time permanently. Orwell was already up to other romantic intrigue. He had met a much younger and beautiful Sonia Brownell when she was an editor at Horizon. Never one for subtlety, he had already proposed to her previously, basically saying that even if she found him unappealing, he wasn't going to live much longer. Now with the incredible success of Animal Farm and 1984, suddenly that proposal seemed much more attractive. She seriously began to discuss the idea, but only upon the condition that Avril would raise Richard. Orwell was so smitten by her that he readily agreed, with the only stipulation that he was reasonably healthy enough to get through the ceremony. He also agreed to move to a hospital closer to her in central London, only blocks from her apartment. Although his inner circle of Sonia, Warburg, and his doctor encouraged him by implying that marriage would help him improve enough to leave the hospital, by October of 1949, that seemed impossibly far-fetched. The marriage took place in George Orwell's private room at University College Hospital, the groom too sick to attend the post-wedding luncheon at the Ritz. If nothing else, the event seemed to cheer up the writer, now suddenly talking forcefully about ideas for his next novel. But the energy was only temporary. One visitor at Christmas time described him as so haggard he looked like an Auschwitz survivor. Nurses were barely able to give him injections. Still, he spent January 1950 planning to transfer to another facility in Gestad, Switzerland, hoping for a miracle cure. It was not to be. In the early morning of January 21st, George Orwell, alone in his hospital room, died of a massive hemorrhage when an artery in his lung finally burst. His wife had already concluded her daily visit. Orwell's sister Avril and his son Richard heard of his death on the radio on the island of Jura. The remnants of his family would meet Sonia Brownell Blair for the first time at the public funeral held in London, perhaps fitting for this bizarre relationship. Another anonymous attendee at the funeral was Jacintha Buttecombe. Decades later, when asked during a BBC interview if there was something left unresolved in her relationship with Orwell, she responded by bursting into tears. As an infamous non-believer, it was initially difficult to find a cemetery that would accept the writer's remains until influential friends interceded and had him interred at All Saints Church, Sutton Courtney, Berkshire. Strangely perverse, even to the end, Orwell had requested that he be buried in the nearest convenient cemetery according to the rites of the Church of England. George Orwell's sister Avril eventually married Bill Dunn, a farmer she met on the island of Jura. 
Together they raised Richard Blair, mostly in Scotland, and until recent years, Orwell's adopted son kept quiet about his connection to his father. Recently, he has been more approachable, returning to Barnhill for the first time in 2014. He is retired and lives in a small village in Warwickshire. His Aunt Avril died in 1978, having lived and farmed with Bill Dunn on the western coast of Scotland. George Orwell was the type of artist that was so financially unsophisticated that before the success of Animal Farm, he told a friend that he barely worried about opening letters from Inland Revenue as, you can't get blood out of a stone. But his ultimate success brought with it financial planning and an accounting firm, Harrison, Sun, Hill, and Company, recommended by a friend. A principal of the firm, Jack Harrison, suggested a corporation be set up to allow for some degree of legal tax avoidance. While Orwell was in hospital, Harrison got him to unknowingly sign papers, awarding the accountant 25% of George Orwell productions. Eventually, in a similar manner, Harrison would swindle Sonia Brownell Blair out of the remaining 75%. Because there was so much money generated by Orwell's publications and literary estate, it was many years before this and other unseemly financial transactions were uncovered, Harrison able to put off Sonia by claiming that huge taxes, her high living, and failed stock market investments had depleted what should have been a massive income. Actually, he had charged the estate excessive fees and commissions. In 1979, Sonia filed a lawsuit, demanding, among other things, a return of the literary rights now legally owned by Harrison. Intimidated by a potentially lengthy trial and the brain tumor that killed her, Sonia Blair settled the lawsuit and was wiped out paying Harrison for rights he never should have possessed in the first place. When she died three weeks after the settlement, her will left the rights solely to Orwell's son, Richard Blair, who owns them to this day. Richard is routinely asked what his father would think about both the tremendous impact of 1984 and the state of the world itself. To the latter, Richard Blair believes that it is impossible to speculate, that his father might be predictably pessimistic or might be optimistic because the world had managed to even remain viable. As to the former, Orwell died having achieved literary celebrity, but no one, not even the author himself, could have ever anticipated the eventual adoption of numerous concepts from 1984 on such a popular scale. Words and ideas like doublespeak, memory hole, newspeak, thought crime, big brother, thought police, war is peace, and telescreen have not only completely entered the lexicon, they have also become practically uncanny precursors of such items and episodes as the war on terror, alternative facts, enhanced interrogation, what the meaning of is is, known unknowns, security cameras, cell phones, facial recognition, and artificial intelligence. Orwell may have also anticipated both his difficult final years and his own literary legacy when he wrote, Writing a book is a horrible, exhausting struggle, like a long bout of some painful illness. One would never undertake such a thing if one were not driven by some demon whom one can neither resist or understand.
Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about George Orwell. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books George Orwell by Gordon Boker and Orwell, Wintry Conscience of a Generation by Jeffrey Myers. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.